Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary, Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler, the Institute's director. In this episode, we hear from Lisa Gunther, a philosopher and activist who teaches at Queen's University in Ontario. She is the author of the 2013 book, Solitary Confinement, Social Death and Its Afterlives. We're going to try and put a little order in all this. We've been all over the place. I've asked Lisa Gunther, who's a professor of philosophy, actually, to put some thoughts about the phenomenology, specifically, of, of solitary, the subject of her next book. And then from there, we'll have Juan Mendez, who is one of the most distinguished human rights people in the world, currently, among other things, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. And he'll put all this in some international context. And Scarlett Kim is one of the co-authors of this terrific report, Boxed In, that the NYCLU just did. And then we'll get together and talk about what we can do to try and move things forward. Let's start with you, Lisa. Thank you, everyone, for coming to this meeting. I just want to say that I think in the last discussion, we were really getting to some very important issues and making some connections already between what's happening on the inside in prisons and how even if you are never uh, unfortunate enough to be incarcerated yourself or to have a loved one incarcerated, how prisons both the practice of solitary confinement and the larger context of mass incarceration in which it's embedded in the U.S. affect all of us. We are a prison society. And that's, I think, what we really need to reflect on. So I have some philosophical reflections on solitary confinement that I want to share with you. But really, I want to put the emphasis on the wisdom that we don't have access to here because we've locked people away. And also, I think that was a really important question that somebody raised. What about the youth who are on the street, who are facing stop and frisk policies, who are negotiating these and finding strategies to support each other and to stay out of prison or to get through prison and cycle out without being destroyed by it? We need to be in conversation with people who have that wisdom. It's one thing for us to speculate on the implications of solitary confinement and what it might mean to survive, to be able to keep oneself together in that context. We actually have people we can ask, and we've had four people give their testimony in this context here. We need more of that conversation going on. And so I just want to direct your attention to the booths that are outside, the tables. There's the New York Civil Liberties Union who has their project that Scarlett Kim is going to be talking about later. Some literature on that, some literature from Solitary Watch, and also some literature from Russell Maroon Schultz. And there's a campaign to free Russell Maroon Schultz. You might not have heard his name already, but he's been in solitary confinement for 21 straight consecutive years in Pennsylvania. And he's been in prison for over 30 years. And he, too, was active in black radical politics in the 60s and 70s and was framed for a murder he didn't commit. He was put in solitary confinement because he was organizing people within the prison. He became the first black president of the Lifers Club in the prison where he was. And so we need to make these connections between solitary confinement in its sort of putative carceral function of containing violence 
and the larger implications of repressing political voices of resistance within the prison by isolating these prisoners from others. Even in solitary confinement, Russell Maroon Schultz continues to yell down the tear and to, when they had open-faced bars in the earlier pre-supermax form of solitary confinement cells, he would organize seminars of other people in prisoners in solitary confinement, and they would teach each other, yell down the tear, talk about African history or talk about military strategy, talk about politics. And these are the kinds of movements that have been going on right under our noses, and we need to pay attention to those. The title of my talk is The Living Death of Solitary Confinement, and I think we already probably have a pretty strong sense of how solitary confinement is a living death, and even why it is. We are social beings, and to be disconnected both from other beings and from a kind of sensory openness onto the world, an experience of space with a horizon or an elsewhere, and not just the experience of oneself as an isolated individual in a box. These are essential to what it means to be a human being, and this is what we take away from people when we lock them up in solitary confinement. From my philosophical perspective, we're not just isolated individuals. We don't just exist as a mind in a body, but rather we exist as being in the world. And the structure of our being in the world is thoroughly relational. We don't just exist in relation to other people, but we exist in relation to time and to space in ways that always exceed the limits of our fingertips. The first project of introducing solitary confinement in the U.S. was already mentioned as a project of rehabilitation and even redemption. It was explicitly conceived as a religious project of destroying the criminal so that there could be a death and rebirth of the citizen. This was at Eastern State Penitentiary, the first formal penitentiary in the U.S. It's also designed as a kind of panopticon where someone could stand at the center of this hub, a warden could stand, or a correctional officer, as we now call them, could stand at the center of this hub and see down all of these different hallways. Each cell was like a little meditation chamber and had only a light at the top that they called a God's eye. And this was explicitly conceived as a way of breaking people down so that they could be reborn and oriented towards this light. Eastern State Penitentiary is now a museum, and you can go there and tour it, and you can see the the relics of these cells. This is what the cell looks like with, you can see the, uh, the electric light at the side, but this is what it looks like without that electric light. And this is the kind of environment that people would have actually been living in. Just one window at the top that you can't even see out of. And so you don't have an experience of space as having a beyond, a horizon. But only the outside is a source of light that you can never contact. And this was supposed to reconstruct the very structure of people's being. The fact that solitary confinement can produce hallucinations can produce these sensory distortions where people sometimes see the cell doors wavering or surfaces of objects bubbling, see figures come to light out of a cell wall like this. Earlier, we had a neurologist talking about how, in a sense, um, when you're cut off from a heterogeneous sensory experience of the world, your brain produces 
the sort of stimulation that it lacks, almost like a phantom limb is uh, produced when there's no longer reafferent information being sent back from that limb. To be isolated in solitary confinement is to have a part of your being amputated. And those sorts of spontaneous creations of scenarios, whether painful and haunting or entertaining and amusing, are a kind of effect of this amputation, I think. I wanted to engage a little bit with some of the testimony that the people who have spoken about their experience today have published in other work. Robert King, in an article, sort of an interview from 2010 in The Guardian, talks about your experience of pacing the cell and also of feeling like you had started to lose your sense of vision from being in that enclosed space. So I was reflecting on this, and I think it's hard to make sense of these sensory distortions if you just think of people as individuals with sensory capacities that are built into the mind and that belong to us as minds, as individuals, rather than as this complex relational being in the world. But as soon as we start to think about existence as relational, it becomes clear why people would lose the capacity to see from a deprivation of something interesting and different to see. That the walls themselves can hamper the eye's ability to see them and to focus clearly on even the unfolding of one's own conscious experience. I think that phenomenology helps us to see why this is the case, that consciousness is always consciousness of something, and that we experience the world through these frames where the meaning of things is not already given in those things, but rather it's through a process of co-creating the meaning of our experience with other people that we come to have a coherent experience of the world in the first place. The basic coordinates of our meaningful experience of the world are the here of our own body and the there of another person's body who looks at us and speaks to us from their own here. It's this coordination of here and there that opens up the three-dimensionality of sensory and social space. So every time I hear and see a sound and another person looks at that sound and looks towards the origin of it, I receive a kind of implicit confirmation that what I heard was something real, that it wasn't just my imagination playing tricks on me. Every time someone walks around a table rather than just walking through it, I receive a kind of unspoken, usually unremarkable confirmation that the table exists, that it has an objective reality, and that my own way of relating to tables is shared by others. When I don't receive these implicit confirmations, I can usually ask someone. But for the most part, we don't have to ask because our experience is already confirmed in these pre-verbal, bodily, everyday, unremarkable ways through our social relations with others. This multiplicity of perspectives is like an invisible net that supports the coherence of my own experience, even or especially when others challenge my interpretation of the world. So what happens when we unhinge people from these basic coordinates of the here and there and there and here of our spatial experience? This is a picture of Angola State Penitentiary from overhead. I just want us to get a sense of what these places look like. And here's a sketch of Herman Wallace's, one of the other Angola members of the Angola Three, his sketch of his cell. Here is a picture of a supermax unit in Cleveland and another one in Illinois. 
Notice the bare walls. These are deliberately designed to reduce sensory stimulation. And here's an image from Shane Bauer's article in Mother Jones, and, and we saw this, this cell in the video. Notice that it's a double cell, so two people live in this cell, which does not at all reduce the isolation and can even intensify it because it puts the burden of having to negotiate this space that is not livable for one person, let alone for two, puts that burden of kind of blocking out the other person so that you can have some sort of solace and rest for yourself on that individual. And I think this is something that Brayden Breitenbach brought out very beautifully, that the person in solitary confinement is made a kind of accomplice in their own undoing. That it's this openness that I think is the openness of our being in the world onto other people and onto the world that is being exploited. And it's our own capacities for resistance, for thought, for consciousness that are turned against us such that if we didn't have the capacity to feel and to respond affectively to our world, that couldn't be used against us. That's one of the, I think, the really horrible things about solitary confinement. So when we isolate a prisoner, we deprive them of this intercorporeal network of support. They might still have an experience of the table that's bolted in place in their cell. And they may still have the memory of what tables mean for other people. But that lived experience of objects as both for me and for another who is not me has been largely denied to them. The there that would otherwise anchor their experience of the world from here has been pulled up casting them adrift without a clear orientation point. So how do people cope with this loss? We've heard a few stories about this from inventing the rooster or experiencing the rooster who talks to you about Hegel to having these dreams that you're in the space shuttle and both taking solace and getting excited about that dream and using it as an anchor for explaining the surreal surroundings that you're stuck in. There's an anthropologist, Lorna Rode, who has done an ethnography of Washington State supermax prisons, and she describes a scene that she witnessed on her first visit. I'm going to show this exercise yard in Pelican Bay State Prison because it's very similar to the one that she witnessed the scene in. There's a prisoner, Jamal Nelson, in the solitary exercise yard, swinging his arms from side to side in widening circles until his knuckles start hitting the concrete walls. He continues to swing, splattering the concrete with blood, relentlessly marking the limits of the space allotted to him, as if oblivious to the pain and even to the walls themselves. What would drive someone to do this? We could invoke mental illness, but without a further analysis, mental illness as a kind of uh, label attached to an individual mind is inadequate to grasp the complex relations of self, world, and other in Nelson's experience. Shane Bauer in his video described solitary confinement as an abyss. What is an abyss though? It's a chasm without edges, without orientation points. It's an emptiness that has become kind of palpable and insistent, like a black hole that sucks everything else into it. As a phenomenologist, I would say that the abyss is an experience of space that has become unhinged from the world the intercorporeal world that we share with others, and within which we get both a sense of the here and there and of an elsewhere, a sense of a horizon of possibility. 
This is the sense of the future, I think, too. Space and time are connected in this way. And the blockage from a lived experience of possibility of another person who could surprise me. I think it was Mike Daisy who said that this would be something that would imagine that this would be something emptied and drained from his life. This element of surprise. The meaning of the future and the meaning of space as referencing an elsewhere is, I think, related to this capacity of other people to surprise us and to respond in ways that we don't expect. The prisoner who bashes his own body against the walls of a wreck yard is both, I think, refusing and confirming the abyss of solitary confinement. The self-battering body makes a statement of sorts. These walls might confine me, absolutely, but I absolutely refuse to be confined. There's a world out there, a there to which my here is correlated, and I will find it even if I have to hurl my own body against these walls. This kind of resistance might be self-defeating, but it remains, I think, an eloquent expression of the depth of emotional and ontological harm that prolonged solitary confinement can inflict upon a person. Some prisoners find other ways of coping with the exhaustion of spatial horizons. So in that same article, Robert King writes, some days I would pace up and down from left to right for hours, counting to myself. I learned to know every inch of that cell. Maybe I looked crazy walking back and forth like some trapped animal, but I had no choice. I had to feel in control of my space. We could contrast this to the response of Jamal Nelson to space in bashing his body against the walls. But unlike that bashing, the habit of pacing both resists and reinscribes the limits of place that block an experience of intercorporeal depth. Unlike bashing, pacing develops a more sustainable coping mechanism, a way of feeling in control of your space even if you don't have the power to change places. The prisoner who paces both refuses to sit still within his allotted space and refuses to destroy his bodily integrity by bashing against the walls. I think it's a way of insisting that one's still a living, moving being, even though the world has been diminished to the point where one's no longer able to live and move freely. Pacing doesn't express an acceptance of limits, but rather a nervous retracing of them, a habit founded around the impossibility of habituating oneself to what is an intolerable situation. In this sense, I think it's still a way of coping, but even this coping mechanism can become a pathology that becomes its own compulsive trap. And Robert, I'd love to talk to you later to see if you think that that in any way articulates something of what is going on in the pacing around the cell. And tell me if it's bullshit, because <laughs> I really want to know. These strategies of resistance and of survival are impressive and even heroic. They attest to the creative capacity of human beings to sustain a sense of being in the world, even when they've been excluded from the world and forced to live in a concrete box. Along with these individual coping strategies, prisoners in isolation have managed incredible feats of political organizing. Witness the hunger strikes at Pelican Bay and other California prisons, the 2010 Georgia prison strike, the continuing political action of the Angola Three to release Herman Wallace and Albert Wood Fox and all prisoners in solitary confinement. Prisoners may be isolated, but they're not for that reason passive and helpless. As long as prisons have existed, so too has the resistance against political oppression, social oppression of poor people, people of color, and anyone who speaks out against the system. 
And yet, without the support of people on the outside, prisoner-led movements are too easily silenced and marginalized. I think what we need to realize is that our own being in the world is bound up with the being in the world of prisoners. It's not just that we've isolated them from our world. We've also isolated ourselves from prisoners, and our own world is thereby diminished. Look at these places. These are aerial shots of prisons across the U.S. Someone already brought up this phrase, there is no there there. And yet prisons are everywhere in our midst. They're in our cities, in our forests, on our highways, in our dead-end streets. They're in our light industrial areas and our low-income neighborhoods. Carceral landscapes are sometimes indistinguishable from places in the free world. Prisons that I've visited remind me of bus depots, school cafeterias, public libraries, college campuses. This is actually an image of Riverbend Maximum Security Institution where I do a weekly philosophy discussion group. This is unit two or death row. This is a prison. This is not like a state college. And yet there are college classes going on there. (laughs) These similarities between carceral landscapes and our own landscapes in the free world remain invisible to us as long as the prison system is functioning to keep them in and to keep us out. Back in 1842, Charles Dickens observed that solitary confinement, quote, makes the prisoner's senses dull and by degrees impairs the bodily faculties. That was in American Notes. He visited Eastern State Penitentiary. But he also observed that because it leaves no visible marks on the body and because prisoners are hidden away from view, solitary confinement affects the public's capacity to see what's right under our noses. He writes, I hold this slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the body. And because its ghastly signs and tokens are not so palpable to the eye and sense of touch as scars upon the flesh, because its wounds are not upon the surface and it extorts few cries that human ears can hear, therefore the more I denounce it as a secret punishment which slumbering humanity is not roused up to stay." It's not just the prisoner who's affected by solitary confinement. So too is the public's capacity to see and hear the damage that is done in our name for the sake of our own apparent safety. Solitary confinement is most clearly and immediately a form of violence against the being of the world in the world of the prisoner. But since being in the world is also a being with others, and since our here is intertwined with their there, it cannot help but affect our own capacities to see, hear, and make sense of our lives. We're missing a whole component of what it means to be American if we're not thinking about prisons. Think about it this way. On the outside, we're free to undervalue the role that our relationships to other people play in supporting our own capacities to think and to perceive. We can indulge in this myth of the individual self-sufficiency without having to actually live that myth. We help ourselves to the support of others all the time. Only the prisoner in solitary confinement is forced to occupy that position that classical liberalism and much of modern philosophy assigns to humanity in general. Only they are expected to bear the full weight of their individual existence alone without the support of others who are in some way geared into their lives and not just blocking, even in their interactions with each other, blocking a a meaningful engagement with them and to take the blame for their own collapse should they prove unable or unwilling to manage this support. As long as our own freedom is secured through the punitive isolation of others, especially if these others remain invisible to us, it's a sham and a shameful kind of freedom, and it diminishes our own capacities for critical awareness. 
I want to conclude with a passage from Emerson's essay, Nature. He says, the health of the eye seems to demand a horizon. We're never tired so long as we can see far enough. The practice of solitary confinement threatens to exhaust the world's horizon. It turns space into an abyss and exposes the mind to what Shane Bauer called blank static. But prisons are a part of our world, and like it or not, they're on our horizon. As many as 80,000 of our fellow citizens are being held in solitary confinement right now, as Ren said at the beginning of the day. The health of our own eye demands that we see them. I just want to conclude with this final image of a kind of reciprocity through letter writing uh, that opens up the prison, a kind of model of Eastern State Penitentiary, to communication. You can go online and Google write to political prisoners and find all kinds of addresses of people that you can write to and be in communication with. So thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.